I'm Sarah Heiner, President of Bottom Line Inc., the number one provider of expert sourced, expert vetted, expert advice that empowers your life. I'm thrilled to be talking today to Dr. David Shear, a physician, author, and inventor. He's the lead author of Dr. David Shear's Hospital Survival Guide, 100 plus ways to make your hospital stay safe and comfortable. He's a member of Leading Physicians of the World and a multi-time winner of HealthTap's Leading Anesthesiologist Award. Dr. Shear practices anesthesiology in the suburbs of Washington, D.C., has held two U.S. patents in the field of critical care medicine and telecommunications. He's a tireless advocate for hospitalized patients and believes that individual responsibility and not government intervention is the key to improving the general health and well-being of all Americans. Dr. Shear is also the author of one of Bottom Line's most popular blogs entitled What Your Doctor Isn't Telling You. And you can read and subscribe to his blog at bottomlineinc.com. So, David, welcome. It's always great to talk to you. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. And we're going to talk today about, you and I were had dinner at one of our experts' dinners a few weeks ago, and you were on a tear on a, on the, a surprising aspect of the opioid crisis that nobody's aware of. What is yeah, that? I, I, I was kind of excited at dinner, I remember. Yeah. Um, that, uh, with all that we're hearing about, about opioids, there's a shortage and not uh, in a good place. No, that, that, that's true. There is a shortage. And um, of course, the news media is filled with uh, the terrible statistics and facts about people dying and overdosing from the widespread use of narcotics in the United States and even worldwide. Uh, but I don't see uh, the subject of narcotic and pain medication shortage being covered as vigorously. All right, so what's the problem? Well, the problem uh, is quite basic and quite frightening. Um, uh, Anesthesiology News, which is the most read anesthesia publication in my specialty, uh, a few months back put out a very good review article about the causes of uh, narcotic shortage uh, in use uh, by physicians and nurses and other hospital staff. And um, even as the death roll rises from the abuse of illicit opioids, uh, the shortage of medication that is necessary to treat people with pain uh, stemmed from this almost perfect storm of events that occurred in 2017. Uh, I think it's important to understand that um, Pfizer Pharmaceuticals, one of the three major manufacturers of narcotic medications in the United States, uh, controls 60% of the market share. And back in June of 2017, while um, Pfizer was upgrading its plant in the Midwest, uh, there was a big production cutback in narcotics used by hospitals and doctors and clinics. Um, at the same time, or actually prior to that, the FDA had done some inspections of the plant and found some quality control issues. So uh, there was kind of a one-two punch in the narcotic industry in the United States at the time. One was a regulatory punch given by the FDA, and the other was a production uh, punch by uh, the, pro the producer itself. And this produced a unanticipated shortage of injectable narcotics for uh, the practitioners, and things kind of went south from there. So in short, what's this a big mess in the industry? Yes. Which, and the implications being there are people who aren't able to get 
uh, to have surgery yes. because there aren't enough injectable opioids and painkillers. There that are people- is exactly right. And in, in a very strange way, this paralleled a similar situation in Puerto Rico where the shortage of intravenous fluids such as dextrose and water and um, normal saline came about because the major manufacturer of IV fluids was in Puerto Rico at the time of the hurricane and wiped out a lot of the capacity for uh, that company to make something as simple as salt water. So this is a parallel situation with narcotics and in our day and age in the United States in um, 2018, it's really inexcusable that either of these things happened. So people aren't aware of this. So somebody, what's the implication? Are people not able to get surgeries? Are people not able, like how broad is this? Because people need to be aware when they're scheduling their surgeries or going in for some surgery that they're going to have a problem. It's broad. Um, it's, it's actually, it actually has caused cancellation of elective surgery. Um, so that's a very big thing because elective surgery accounts for a large proportion of surgeries done in the United States. Um, terribly, it has caused a shortage of narcotic medication for cancer patients who not only are suffering from the devastating effects of a diagnosis and of cancer, but are dealing with tremendous pain uh, from different forms of cancer. So we have not only a shortage in elective surgery patients and um, cancer patients, but in patients with chronic pain who need uh, sometimes intravenous medication. It's a terrible thing. All right, and so this is crazy because why, why can't the industry fix this? Why is it taking so long? I think I read that Pfizer wasn't gonna be up and running until, the, until January, till the beginning of 2019. That's their right. Pr production. That's right. Well, that brings in the third player, the DEA. Now, I was not aware that uh, the Drug Enforcement Administration actually controlled some of the ingredients that the narcotic companies get to make their products. Did you know that? I promise you I did not. It's almost like a pizza maker right. uh, who makes wonderful pizza was being restricted on the flour that that company was receiving from the flour producers. Well, I would it's presume like, that you need quality control though with as much um, bad medication that's made or um, blanking out on the word that I want. Um, fake medicine. That's right. So, and see, so this they need is to where be this, able to project out. That's right. So this is where this movement came from, this, uh, this whole thing, because uh, as illicit drugs were growing and the precursors to make illicit drugs were growing, the producers of the precursors had to put some controls in place about how loose they were going to be with their precursor ingredients. And so, like I said in the beginning, a perfect storm came about where about there was a loss or a reduction in the amount of pre precursor given to the main pharmaceutical companies to even make the products that they were going to make. And, and, and for, for reasons that I'm not sure I'm clear about. But again, this, it, it, it just baffles me. If, if they were driven, so when they were driven to get a vaccine for HPV or shingles, they made it happen. Right. How come they're not driven? This is a crisis. People, we haven't even talked yet about the risk that people are at with dosing mistakes, drug mistakes. Yep. Right. Um, and that why aren't they making sure this gets fixed? 
in well, a timely fashion? Because right, this has well, gone on for a year. Right, but unlike the HPV situation, um, where there's really no negative connotation about human papilloma virus, virus other than its venereal connotation, it, there's no legal connotation about that, but certainly there is a legal connotation to illicit drugs. So uh, the, the, the pervasive problem of illicit drug use and the deaths resulting and the, and the morbidity and mortality associated with illicit drug use is a much more public and criminal issues than, say, human papillomavirus. Yeah, and but there's not, of, a there's not a shortage of that stuff, David. There's not a shortage of oral painkillers. They're giving people who can have surgery or right. who they don't have post-surgical um, right. IVs of painkillers. They're giving them oral stuff whether they can digest it or not. Right. Uh, but, of course, you're thinking with common sense. And uh, common sense doesn't often... often uh, and common sense is in abundant... Uh, a shortage today and I think I think trying to parse through the information that I read in these studies and this information it seems to me that the combination of a, a, a heavy hand on the DEA by not giving precursors to the proper agents and then the production problems as well uh, led to this cascade and I haven't even finished talking about the other cascades that that I'll get to that resulted from the shortage of precursors and production all right. We can't. It sounds like I can continue to rant, but the situation is that people that are looking to have surgery or cancer patients are at risk of not being able to have their surgery or to be to literally be physically at risk during that surgery. So let's talk about what the risks are of um, the shortage and how the doctors and the hospitals are compensating and putting patients at risk. Now, that's a great question. So here we go with the implications of what you just said. First of all, it's important to understand that the three major injectable pain medications, whether they come in an ampule, which is a little glass uh, vial, or whether they come pre-filled in a syringe, the three main medications used in hospitals today are morphine sulfate, uh, Dilaudid or hydromorphone, and fentanyl. So everybody's heard about fentanyl because it's killing people left and right in states like West Virginia, California, Alabama, uh, Pennsylvania. Everybody knows about this for lack of a better term, hillbilly heroin, which is, is really hurting people. Um, they, they're less familiar with, say, Dilaudid unless they're a hospital patient. And of course, everyone's heard of morphine because morphine's been around for a long, long time. So when these shortages of these three injectable agents occurred, hospitals had to scramble for the use of backup medications. And those backup medications might have included or include Demerol, which everybody's heard of, and sufentanil or alfentanil, which are uh, related to fentanyl in their, in their uh, action, but um, just of slightly different chemical structure. So the risk in that became, since doctors were used to using morphine and hydromorphone and fentanyl every day, day in and day out, and using it like a carpenter used his favorite, favorite hammer, or a mechanic uses his favorite wrench, suddenly the person, the practitioner was being asked to use new medications. And let me tell you from my 35 years as an anesthesiologist, being used to using medications in their certain dosages and side effect profile every day, it's kind of tough to ask me to go switch to, to a different medication and be facile in using that right away. 
Right. And people, so it's needing to switch it. What's the proper dosing for it? I also exactly. read that one of the issues is that for some gosh knows why reason, they're, all, they're producing a lot of this stuff and putting it in, I'll call it large jugs. But you right. really needed an individual um, dosing vials. So right. now you have to, they have to figure out how to do the math and accurately measure a fraction of a vial. You know, right. Of a jug. To, to give you some perspective, when you look at morphine sulfate and understand that fentanyl is 100 times stronger than that, and then you go look at sufentanil and realize that that's another multiple stronger than fentanyl itself, you have to understand if people are not diluting the sufentanil correctly, you're going to have a bunch of dead patients. You know? Small uh, problem. Well, fentanyl. Yeah, small, small problem. You know, well, I'm used to giving 50 mics of fentanyl, right? So I give the 50 mics, which is one cc, and everybody's happy. And now you're asking me to adjust my dosages quickly in circumstances using a drug much more powerful than fentanyl itself. You're going to have errors on the floors of hospitals. So, what kind of questions? All right, so now we always come back to what can patients do? What can people do to protect themselves? Um, and participate in this. Again, we now are talking about a victim situation. People are going in the hospital for, they're going in for surgery. My daughter just had her wisdom to that. that now that's outpatient surgery, but they still used um, these, you know, assorted painkillers and drugs injected. Um, that they're going in for surgery. They're assuming they're going to be handled properly by the lovely anesthesiologist who they've met, who, you know, says, don't worry but apparently they really do have to worry. So what questions does somebody need to ask before they go into surgery, before they go in to have a baby because you know it's affecting people that need emergency C-sections? What do they need to be aware of and what do they need to ask? Well, first they should thank their lucky stars that they heard this podcast, right? <laughs> well, of course. Second, they should thank their lucky stars that they read bottom line. And thirdly, they should be informed much like we've talked about in other areas by putting some information down for themselves. And it might include questions about, hi doctor, um, I understand there's been a shortage of medication in our country, what will you be using on me today? I don't think that's an unreasonable question because it lets the doctor know that A, you know that there's been a problem and alerts the physician who's taking care of you that you know there's a problem and that the person taking care of you better understand what they're doing before they do it. And then should you then follow that up with, because they're going to say, because they're not going to want to put you in any fear. They'll say, oh, we're using, you know, fentanyl, morphine, whatever they're saying. That's right. And then right. do you say, is that your normal cocktail of drugs? And have you well, had any problem, you know, supplying it? Do you have the normal amount that you normally would? I see nothing wrong with saying something like that. Absolutely nothing. But I might say it like this. You'll be more you know, charming I've, than me. <laughs> well, no, not at all. Uh, but I've, I've been in the arena, so I know. I might say something like, gee, I've heard that drug is much more powerful than the ones you used to use. Is that true? And so that gives the doctor two things. One, a warning that you know what you're talking about. And two, reminds the physician that, hey, yeah, sufentanil is a hell of a lot stronger than fentanyl. And I better watch how I dose it. So... These gentle but firm reminders about the fact that the problem exists and that you know that, you know, things are not the normal way that they are can go a long way in protecting yourself. 
Right. So the goal, it's not like I'm going to change the situation, but I want to be sure the doctor is totally alert and on his toes, double checking, triple checking that everything you know, is pa- done properly. If a patient told me that, I'd say, boy, you know, this patient's really informed and I'm glad that that I have someone who understands the importance of what I do, number one, and is cares enough about him or her own self to to be on top of this issue because you know there's nothing long wrong with reminding people about the importance of their job and um you know it it can be done tactfully so well and you know, also it, yeah go ahead also you know they've they've built in safety measures to prevent mistakes during surgery so we've all heard horror stories about the wrong arm got amputated or you know the wrong ovary got taken out or something like that or the wrong thyroid, right? So they now have magic markers where they'll mark on the body so that nobody has any question. And they ask that question a thousand times in pre-op. Right. But I presume, I'll, 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 I'll force my, my assumptions onto this, that because this is a temporary problem and it's a relatively new problem, they haven't built these same kind of safeguards into the system. That's a great and, point. And because you, they're also making do with whatever they got. So it's not like there's a rule of what to replace with. Yes. And so in that case, I believe that there should be, in addition to the perioperative or preoperative checklist, the addition that, and you know, we're not using fentanyl because it's on back order. We're using Sufenta, so we have to dose accordingly. And, and so I think that any medical practitioner in the field or related fields that I work in should be listening to this podcast and say, you know, we really should add that to our preoperative checklist because it's something we didn't cover before, but should. Exactly. And how about cancer patients? Because that's another area where um, people are really being impacted. That's a terrible situation. I mean, I can't think of anything more miserable or demoralizing than going through a, a, a hellish diagnosis, diagnosis like pancreatic cancer and the pain that goes along with that and not being able to at least get relief from the terrible pain that something like that can cause. So is there any um, strategies, any, you know, best second choices? Is this someplace where they start looking more seriously into um, medical marijuana, acupuncture, you know, is any of that anywhere near as effective for these kinds of pains? you know, I'm not well versed in that. Uh, in particular, I certainly feel that it, that it can have a role and it's valuable to examine those possibilities. But I think it, when, while we're in the um, intravenous medication, the injectable, injectable medication shortage, there are good, uh, decent alternatives for oral medication for cancer patients that are long lasting. Um, so I, I think the, the oral medication in patients who have cancer can help, although uh, it's not the full answer. So, well, the full um, answer is them fixing this and fixing yes, it speedily and, yes. and, and as a priority. Now, let me add that um, part of the, the uh, supposed solution to this problem is what they call multimodal pain approach. And this is an old approach that goes back many years where they're talking about the addition of local anesthetics to wounds and regional anesthesia blocks to patients. Um, since the shortage of narcotics came about, 
uh, anesthesiologists have had to alter their anesthesia plan and do more regional anesthesia, meaning spinals, epidurals, and nerve blocks. Well, guess what? What do you think happened then? There was a shortage. There was a shortage of those medicines. <laughs> because if you're going to have a shortage in one area, like the injectable narcotics, and have to rely on the local anesthetics and use them more, well, the system wasn't prepared for that. Nobody thought ahead. So now, not only do we have a shortage of narcotic medications injectable, we now have a shortage of the most basic local anesthetics that were prevalent like water for 30 years. Yeah, crazy. All right, Crazy. so give me real quickly again, what are, the, what are the names of the drugs that are currently shortage so that people will know to ask, if they, you know, what do you usually use? Are you using this or what's the replacement? So what are the, the ones that are shortage? So people, people, people can ask, are you short on morphine? Uh -huh. are, you short, are you short on Dilaudid? And are you short on fentanyl? Those, okay. are, the th those are the three um, basic uh, medications injectable that have suffered the shortage the most. And then if they so, hear that there's a shortage on that, then they simply say, I've that, heard that the replacements are stronger. Right, and these are some of the replacements. Not necessarily stronger, right. some are stronger, but some aren't. Right. But some have a worse side effect profile like Demerol. So the follow-up question is, then what do you plan to use with me? Demerol, Sufenta, or Alfenta? That would be the follow-up question. So. Okay. So the first question is morphine, Dilaudid, and fentanyl. And then if you really want to blow the people away and show them that you know your P's and Q's, you say, I suppose that means you're going to use either Demerol, Alfenta, or Sufenta. And they're going to look at you like you're some kind of space alien or some plant from the DEA or something. But it's going to show them that you're educated and, and that, that things really need to be done properly. Right. And so then can you be then a the, control freak like me and say, and I presume that you've thought carefully through the adjustments of the dosing on those? Absolutely. <laughs> why, I mean, why not? The worst that's going to come away is that the, the doctor is going to feel that you're a smart aleck jerk. Well, so what? That's their problem, you know? Well, I don't want to piss off anybody that's got a scalpel in his hand. That's true. Well, the, <laughs> anesthesiologist, the anesthesiologist doesn't have the scalpel, remember. The surgeon does. Even and you're so. never... You're never going to ask the surgeon these questions because they're a bit too busy cutting on people. They're not talking to you. That's they're, true. Right. So, but it's the anesthesia person that you're going to let know that you know that, you know, I'm at your mercy here. You know, I'm, I'm sitting here on this table unconscious and you're going to be putting things in my vein. And I, I sure hope it's 10 micrograms instead of 100. Yeah. So that's, that's the second group of questions. The first was what I know that you're a shortage of. The second I know what you're going to be using. And the third is, so are you on a shortage of local anesthetics as well? And the local anesthetics that are in shortage are lidocaine, which has been used forever. Yes. Uh, bupivacaine or marcaine, which has been used forever. And the newer drug, uh, ropivacaine, which um, has its own advantages. But uh, again, as I said, there's a shortage of these guys too. So it, when I spoke about the perfect storm, well, you know, some of the people in the article said, how can this happen when surgery and pain control are part of the United States infrastructure, just like the telephones and the, uh, in, and the communications and the streets, you know, the highways? I mean, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people and patients, millions go to the hospital every year and use um, narcotic pain medication and 
and local anesthetics. And, you, and yet this was allowed to happen in 2017 America, you know? Well, another podcast, another day. Because again, the frustration, this is, this is the bureaucracy that we live in. This is the frustration of the healthcare system. And this is why you and I both are so strong in our belief of people doing whatever they can to avoid being in these situations. And then if they are in the situations, to be as knowledgeable as possible. That's right. That's why we do what we do. It's true. Thank you so much, Dr. David Shear. Okay. I'm talking to leading anesthesiologist and patient advocate, Dr. David Shear. Healthcare only gets more complicated, especially for hospitalized patients. That's why Dr. Shear does all he can to help people understand the ins and outs of the healthcare system, including what they can do to help themselves in the process. Dr. Shear is just one of the many leading experts who share their wisdom in America's most empowering newsletter, Bottom Line Personal. Twice each month, readers get actionable insider advice on all aspects of life, including living a healthy life, travel, insurance, home maintenance, retirement planning, smart tax strategies, and so much more. Bottom Line Personal has been helping people lead more informed and vibrant lives for over 40 years with our actionable and double fact-checked advice. Subscribe today and get a free bonus book, Bottom Line's Best Bets, full of some of the greatest tips from our experts of all time. Just go to bottomlineinc.com forward slash BLP. That's bottomlineinc.com forward slash BLP.